Morning, everybody. My name's Tom Leary. I'm one of the elders here at Parkway. And once again, I have the privilege of sharing from God's Word with you. Um, before we do that, why don't we just pray one more time. Father, we beg your, your assistance as we delve into your Word, as we look at what you have to say about the giving of our time, talent, and treasure. You are holy, Lord. Your love is amazing. And we're so grateful for your grace. Get me out of the way this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever done anything with a bad attitude? Have you ever done something, not because you wanted to, but because you had to? Have you ever done something, not for good motives, but because you wanted something in return? We all have. Why? Well, it's because we're selfish, egocentric, train wrecks with narcissistic tendencies. That's us. Praise God for his salvation. I mean, that's what we are because of what happened in Genesis 3. But we do praise God for his mercy and salvation. We are new creations, justified by the blood of the Lamb. While at the same time, we're sinners. Luther referred to it as simultaneously justified and a sinner. This is a description not of our identity before God, but a description of the both and that characterizes the Christian life. If you have any doubt about that, Think back to this morning. As a justified believer in Jesus, think back to to what went on in your house this morning as you were getting ready for church or in the car on the way to the church building. So last week we examined our motivation in giving our motivation in giving from chapter 8 of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And we looked at grace giving. We saw that our giving is not tithing, which is law. It's not about a percentage. But instead, we give according to our means and beyond our means, according to our ability and beyond our ability. Our motivation is love. Our giving is a matter of equity, not equality. And finally, the guideline for giving is proportionate. That is, it's out of what we have, not out of what we do not have. Our text this morning addresses our attitude, that is, our mindset. When it comes to giving with a godly outlook, a godly approach for godly reasons. And again, please recall that I said last week, there's no way to fully expound on what I'm sharing with you this morning. It would take a month of Sundays to do that. But be encouraged to go home and dig and see what God's word says to you on your own. Our text this morning is chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, verses 6, 7, and 8. Paul wrote, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So the last part of chapter 8 we did not look at last week was devoted to the um, intentional decision the apostle made to set up the collection and the administration of the collection of the gift for the saints in Jerusalem 
to, to order it in such a way so that um, there would be no appearance of impropriety on his part. He delegated that responsibility to Titus and to another well-known preacher of the gospel. And he did that because he didn't want his critics or his detractors to have even the slightest chance to accuse him of being anything but honest and ethical. And then in chapter 9, Paul starts out acknowledging he didn't really have to write to them about the contribution they were making for the saints in Jerusalem because he knew that they were eager and willing to give. In fact, it was the zeal of the Corinthians that had prompted the, the people in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, to give as they did. Paul said he was actually sending Titus and the other brothers ahead to make sure the Corinthians were actually prepared for the collection like Paul had told the Macedonians. He didn't want them to be unprepared so there would be no embarrassment. The brothers were going ahead to Corinth to make sure they were ready also so that their generous gift would not appear to be based in greed or expecting something in return. Now there's one other thing that we have to remember and this is really a big deal in the first century. The Corinthian donors, the donors in Macedonia, were Gentile believers giving to the Jewish saints in Jerusalem. This service, as Paul refers to it, would tend to forge strong relationships between these two diverse groups of people. So this morning we're going to examine the following questions. Why do we give? Why can we give? And what attitude is to guide our giving? We will not be talking about how we give or our motivation to give. We talked about that last week. Motivation, primary motivation being love. And understanding that giving is a function of God's grace in our lives. Now the opposite of grace giving, the opposite of one's being uh, one's giving being a function of God's grace in one's life is giving to get. Giving to get is the mantra. It is the operational incentive. It is the driving force of the false teachers that you and I can hear and watch on the TV, radio, and internet. Giving to get. Give more to God and he'll give more to you. Tolian Shavijan touched on this when he wrote, quote, living life to get rather than to give, makes life heavy. He's right. Giving to get more weighs us down, makes us tired, takes our focus off what is important. Giving to get is burdensome. Living life to give, living life to be generous, on the other hand, brings a sense of joy and satisfaction that accumulating all the wealth in the world would never bring. So why do we give? Well, like I pointed out last week, there are any number of false teachers out there telling people that if only they give, God will bless them. If only they give, they'll have more. Those are lies straight from the pit of hell. What these false teachers don't get is that God has already blessed the true believer without the believer doing anything. As Charles Hodge said 135 years ago, Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Nothing we as believers do will result in a windfall from heaven. We have been blessed. That's why we give. And like I said a minute ago, another reason is love. 
In our text last week in chapter 8, we saw Paul wrote, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Why did Jesus become poor for our sake? Love. If God had not loved us, he would have not sent his son. If God had not loved us, Jesus wouldn't have submitted to the will of the Father and gone to Calvary. Had God not loved us, Jesus wouldn't have been raised from the dead. Had God not loved us, he wouldn't have saved us. He was motivated by love, and we too are to ask him to work in us in such a way as to cause us to be motivated by love. It's, again, it's some, you know, we can strive to be loving, and we can you know, want that in our lives, but we can't make it happen. We have to beg God to work in our lives. It is he who is at work in us, both to work and to will for his good pleasure. Our motivation in giving to the Lord is important. If I give to get, if we give to earn God's favor, if we give to look good in the, in the eyes of others, we're given for the wrong reasons and certainly with the wrong attitude. And that's our focus this morning, our attitude when we give. <clears throat> giving with the wrong attitude, get this out of the way real quick, is not biblical giving. It's buckling under, it's giving away to peer pressure, it's trying to be something that we are not, and it is engaging in legalism that Paul explicitly and vehemently condemned. Now, we get up, give out of love for God and for one another. And that includes being generous not only with our treasure, but with our time and our God-given talent, the spiritual gift that God has given to each one of us. It is with all of these that we invest in the kingdom for the glory of God. God has gifted each of us spiritually, and he wants us to employ that gift for his glory and for the benefit of his church. And it takes time to do that. But that's what being generous is all about. So why can we give? First, we can give because of what we saw last week in chapter 8. Paul pointed out that the giving that took place in Macedonia was a direct result of the grace of God. God is consistently at work in the lives of his people. So often we forget that. That slips our minds. We forget he's at work. Every single day and every minute of every day in our lives. But we're so preoccupied with what's going on in our life that we don't realize it. We don't take that into consideration. He is working all things together for good, conforming us to the image of his son, bringing his good work in us to completion. It is because of his grace that we can give. Again, giving is a function of God's grace in our lives. Secondly, we can give because of what we have been given. We receive the blessings of salvation freely because of what Jesus did on our behalf. Those blessings cost us nothing. Think Ephesians 1 and, and 2. Chosen, elected before the foundation of the world, predestined to adoption, we have redemption, we have forgiveness, we have an inheritance, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, we receive God's mercy and his love, we've been made together, made alive together with Christ, we've received salvation as a gift, and we are his workmanship. And it goes on and on. Those blessings are ours without us doing anything. That's amazing. 
In fact, there's absolutely no way we could have purchased or earned the blessings of salvation. Because we freely receive these blessings, we can freely give to God and to others. Understand the order here. We could not freely give if we had not already freely received. It's only because we have freely received that we can freely give of our time and our talent and our treasure. Thirdly, we can give because God enables us to give, giving us confidence that he will replenish what is spent on the furthering of his kingdom, be it money or time. Paul wrote in chapter 9, verses 6 and 8, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, remember from last week, that's the state of being content, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, being content in everything, always, you may abound in every good work. It is God's will that we abound in good works. To earn or maintain God's favor? Absolutely not. But because we have received the blessings, because we have received salvation, because God's grace has been showered down upon us, we can't help but engage in good works. Paul's not saying if we give a little, we'll receive a little for our needs. Verse 6 is not saying if you want more, then give more. No, that's the argument of the false teachers. Instead, the Greek tells us that as we sow, as we give, as we sow, as we actively so it's something that takes place continuously it's not a one-time thing as we actively give to the lord's work time treasure or talent god will continue to provide for us so that we can continue to be generous if we are sparing in our giving we will not have more to give On the other hand, the more we give, the more God will supply what we need to actively give more. Isn't that wild? In verse 8, a better translation would be, God is powerful to make all grace abound to you. He is the one that has the means and the ability and the power to provide the means to give. It's by His power He enables us to actively give. He is powerful to continue to provide what we need and to keep us in a state of contentment. Again, abiding in that state of contentment is not something that we accomplish. It's something that God does in our lives. He is the one that provides all that that is needed. And he can and he does multiply what he provides so that we can continue to be generous. He is the one who causes us to have more than enough grace to be completely content with what we have so that we can engage in the good works that demonstrate our love for Him and for one another. God's replenishment of our resources is intended by Him to uh, enable us to abound in every good work. Our time, our talent, our money which are provided to us by God and which are owned by God, are not to be hoarded, but they are to be used to promote good. Again, we give not because we have to, but because we get to. Just like we don't come to church because we have to, 
Like in some faith traditions, the one I grew up in, you had to go to church, or if you died, you go to hell. No, we get to come to church. We get to give. We want to give as a direct result of the gospel taking root in our hearts and in our lives. At the same time, we need to pay attention to what Paul does not say. He does not say that wealth or having a a surplus income is necessarily a sign of God's blessing. Just as he does not say that having a surplus is a bad thing. we got to be careful what we read into the text. And there are people who who will preach that. But Paul doesn't say those things. Not only that, it's not giving by itself that Paul commends. What Paul endorses is an active lifestyle of giving. Our giving actively demonstrates the genuine nature of our love. Our love for God and our love for one another. To those who give cheerfully and willingly, the promise God makes is that he will provide all they need to continue to actively engage in good works. And we are to engage in good works. James told us in chapter 2, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Our faith is demonstrated by our works. Faith apart from works is dead. But understand, even these good works we do are a gift from God. They are a manifestation of His grace in our lives. Spurgeon said that none of them rise up spontaneously in our hearts. It is God who is at work in you and in me to work and to will for His good pleasure. One more thing. The attitude of contentment Paul talks about in verse 8 assumes a trust and a confidence in God to provide for all of our basic needs. If we truly believe He loves us, and if we truly know in our hearts that He watches over our lives, then any anxiety regarding the future will dissipate. And we, we wrestle with that back and forth, don't we? We wrestle with that. An attitude of contentment demonstrates our absolute dependence upon God for everything in our lives. Finally, we can't help but give. Once we get the gospel of grace, once we get deep down in our souls what God has done for us, in Christ, once we get that Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, once we get the love of God in Christ Jesus, we can't help but give. We can't help but engage in good works. We can't help but love one another more. Our giving of our time, talent, and treasure is the fruit of the work of the gospel of grace in our lives. So what is our attitude to be when it comes to giving? And when I say attitude, the dictionary definition of the word attitude is the settled way of thinking or feeling about something, typically a way of thinking that is reflected in a person's behavior, how we think being borne out in our activity. Paul gives us clear direction in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So first, we are to be individualistic when we give. Verse 7 starts out, each one. What he's saying there is each one of you, okay? He's not talking, you know, about those people. He's saying each one of you. 
must give as he has decided in his heart what to give. And oftentimes people will tend to compare themselves with other people. And that directly leads to a breakdown in community. When it comes to money, many compare themselves to those who have more than they do. Such upward financial comparisons generate increasing amounts of greed and decreasing amounts of compassion. We are not to make the decision related to giving based on what someone else does or does not do. We are not to look at the guy or the gal next to us. We're not to look at the Christian celebrity. This, Paul says, is an individual decision. Each one of you. He's talking to each of us individually. Each one must give as he has decided. The word decided in the Greek means to determine beforehand. That is, decided ahead of time. Additionally, it means to choose deliberately, to make up one's mind about something. It carries with it the idea of deliberately purposing to do something in advance. Grace giving is to be based on a considered, deliberate, and intentional decision. The time to figure out whether or not I'm going to give or how much I'm going to give is not as the plate is closing in on me as it comes down the row. This active giving is an important part of our worship experience and should not be decided impulsively. To decide beforehand is to think through just where I am when it comes to giving to the Lord in advance. Not a decision that is spontaneously or made or at the last second we decide. Grace giving is also intentionally deciding the amount of time given to ministry. That could be within the walls of the church or outside the walls of the church. It could be mowing the neighbor's lawn. Because he's going through chemo and he really doesn't feel good right now. Taking a meal or going and visiting a shut-in. It could be a myriad of things that take time. That don't necessarily cost us anything monetarily. Doing this is not giving in to pressure by someone. We're to consider, consider our gifts to God in advance, including our gifts of time, talent, or treasure, and we are to consider what we give in advance. Paul says that we are to um, give as we have decided in our heart. It's a sad fact, but some people will only contribute to charitable causes if they're recognized publicly for doing so. That attitude flies in the face of Paul's instruction here when he says our giving is a matter of the heart. When Paul says that our giving is to be decided in our hearts, he means privately. Our giving is between each of us and the Lord. That means we do not broadcast our giving. That means we do not talking about how much we give or use it as an example to motivate other people to give. It's private. He goes on. Not reluctantly. The Greek here for reluctantly means no grief, no sorrow, no pain. No grief, no sorrow, no pain as we give. It's different from giving voluntarily, which we'll talk about in a second. There are those who write, write the check or drop it in the plate grimacing, hating to see it go, feeling like somebody's broken their arm. That feeling comes from an unfortunate legalistic view of giving that too many still hold on to. Not only that, but grumping 
about the money or the time we give to the Lord's work, I would argue, negates the love aspect of the gift. When our giving is not reluctantly, we will not feel as if we are losing something that we think belongs to us. There will be no regret, no sadness, no remorse. Not reluctantly and not under compulsion. Last week I shared an experience I had in another church many years ago with you where compulsion was the operational word. People were put on the spot to perform. People were embarrassed and subjected to peer pressure. The pressure to give was huge. It's so sad when that happens within a body of believers. Paul's clear. Our giving is to be absolutely and completely voluntary. We are not to give because of pressure brought to bear by, on us by church leaders or fellow church members. We are not to give out of a concern what others think will, will think of us or because we feel as if our arms are being twisted behind our backs. We are not to give out of necessity imposed either by the circumstances we face or by any law of duty which would include the tithe. Charles Spurgeon preached on this very thing 146 years ago. And very descriptively... He said, you are not, therefore, to give or do anything to God as of compulsion, as though you heard the old mosaic whip cracking in your ears. No, there is to be no distress, which is the meaning of compulsion. There is to be no distress in our giving, in our serving. Nor are we to be thinking about what a hardship it is. If we see it as a hardship, as compulsory, then the gift that we give, again, is devoid of love and really has no meaning whatsoever. What we give, time, talent, or treasure, is to be a willing gift. How do we know that? Our text last week. Paul said, for if the readiness is there, it, the gift, if the readiness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. Readiness here means eager, ready, and willing. Such words describe our voluntary giving. The gift is acceptable to God if the giver is eager and willing to give it. It's not the amount of money, it's not the amount of time that is important, but the voluntary nature of the giving. Voluntary giving will result in generosity. And finally... <clears throat> Paul says, for God loves a cheerful giver. This particular word for cheerful is only used here in the New Testament. The acceptable gift that Paul referred to in 2 Corinthians 8.12 is one that is actively given cheerfully and joyously. What is implied is the cheerful giver is a happy giver. He's glad to give to the Lord. The, the, the Greek word for cheerful is the root for our English word hilarious. I had a friend at my last church who actually now attends Parkway, and when he prayed for the offering on Sunday morning, he would pray that those who gave would do so hilariously. He got it. This cheerful giver is one who gives proportionately, as we talked about last week, with equity, again, not reluctantly and not under compulsion. We cannot give reluctantly, we cannot give under compulsion, and at the same time be cheerful. So there you have it. 
We give individually, intentionally, privately, painlessly, voluntarily, and cheerfully. And all of these attitudes of the Christian, all these ways of thinking, are ours because of the work of God's grace in our lives. We don't decide to be this way. We're not talking about behavior modification. We ask God to work in our hearts. To get a grip on our hearts. And to do His work in our lives. So that we can give of our time or our money. Individually, intentionally, painlessly, privately, voluntarily, and cheerfully. With a big grin on our face. The one who gives with these attitudes is able to do so because he's one who cannot help but give because he gets the gospel of grace. I say again, because of the grace shown by God toward a believer in what Jesus has done for him or her, he bore the wrath of God on the cross. He experienced abandonment by his Father to satisfy the debt for our sin, that believer is able to see that his giving is a response to God, not a demand by God. When one gets the gospel of grace, no one can hold that person back from giving or any other good work. The good work is a result, it's a response to what God has already done in the life of the believer. It's very important to see that. It's so important to get that. One final point and I'll end. Paul ends this section with verses 12 through 15. He says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saint, saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul points out that God will in the future be thanked and glorified because of their giving. He says that God is presently being praised and magnified and celebrated because of their generosity. And that's the point. God's glory. God will be praised and magnified and celebrated as we give not only of our money to his work, but also as we give of our time and our talent. Being generous with our time and our talent builds up God's church and his people. We all have time to give. We all have at least one spiritual gift to employ for the benefit of and the building up of the people of this church. And you will not hear from this pulpit, from any preacher in this pulpit, that there's a particular amount of time or a particular amount of money that you are to give. That's private, remember? It's between you and God. We give of all of that so that the people of the church God's people, God's family can go out and share the truth of the gospel with their family and their neighbors and their friends. Paul then ends with a reminder of the supreme example of giving. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. 
Inexpressible refers to something that cannot be described. It is so overwhelming. Something that is beyond human description. What then is this inexpressible gift? This indescribable gift? Jesus. As a result of the work of Jesus, salvation is altogether a gift of God. One commentator quoting a missionary wrote, We can give without loving, but we cannot love without giving. God loved us, and he gave. Apart from his love, God would not have given. God so loved us that he gave the ultimate, inexpressible, indescribable gift whose cost can never be matched. The gift of his only son. Pray with me. Father, we are so grateful for this inexpressible gift. We are so grateful for Jesus. We're overwhelmed, Lord. We can't put into words when we ponder the gift of your salvation, how your grace is manifested in our lives. It so humbles us, Lord. Father, we pray that you would continue to do a mighty work in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.